Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers is a Christian apologetics ministry led by Dr. Pat Zucaran. Pat provides compelling messages from top apologetic scholars defending the Christian worldview and provides valuable resources for every person seeking answers to life's questions, as well as addressing key issues of our time. Serving to equip Christians who want to effectively engage their world for Christ is our focus. Proponents of transgenderism present several arguments for their case, such as, I was born this way, and I cannot change my disposition. What about intersex people that have been born with an unclear gender? Where does the Bible specifically prohibit gender transformation? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zugran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, our host, Pat, will be sharing from his weekly YouTube show, Question of the Week, where he addresses some of these arguments and presents a biblical defense of the image of God, which is under attack today. Aloha, and welcome to another episode of Question of the Week. Uh, brought to you by the Honolulu Christian Church and Evidence and Answers. And each week we tackle some of the toughest challenges and provide biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, we've been talking about the recent act introduced by the President, the Equality Act, which was followed by the bill presented by the House of Representatives, H.R. 5. And this deals with transgenderism. And so Today, we're going to be answering some of the questions and arguments that have arisen as a result of what we talked about last week, the whole transgender issue. So during the week and since the last several months that I've been talking on this issue, I've received several questions and arguments for transgenderism that we'll be addressing in this session. Now, the first argument for transgenderism is this. I was born this way. I was born male, but I feel like a female, and this dysphoria I have, I was born this way. I was born in the wrong body, all right? I was born this way, and I therefore, I cannot change. Sexual preference and choosing your gender, deciding to go against your biological makeup is a choice that we make. It's different from something like the race issue that it is being equated to. Transgenderism or the sexuality you choose is different from the race issue. Race is something that you are born with and that cannot change, right? I will always be Asian no matter what. Now, no matter how much I try to deny it or erase it, I will always be Asian. I'm born that way. That cannot change. Your sexual preference or to choose to go against your biological makeup and choose another gender. That's a choice issue. And we know it's a choice issue because that can be changed. There are thousands who have come out of the gay lifestyle and thousands who have left the transgender lifestyle and return to accept you know, the biology or the biological makeup that they inherited when they were born. So that would not be possible, okay, if like race you were born that way. You wouldn't be able to change. There's no such thing really as ex-Asian, right, or ex-Caucasian. There really isn't. But we have thousands of ex-gays 
X trans, X cues. We have thousands of them, okay, which shows you it is a choice and change is possible. Now, the whole argument, I was born this way, I mean, there is some truth in that. We are all broken vessels as a result of the fall of Adam and Eve and sin affecting the created order. So, we're all born broken. And we're all born with certain types of dispositions. But some are healthy and some are not. And so we have to evaluate whether certain dispositions are positive or negative. And if they are negative, then we do all we can to try to correct or control that particular disposition. For example, Okinawans, which is what I am, or tend to be hot-blooded or aggressive. That doesn't mean I feed that, all right? And say, well, you're born that way, so you fight all the time. Well, that's just the way you are, so go ahead, okay? No, we don't. We see that as a negative disposition and do all we can to control it or to change it. So it's a more healthy kind of lifestyle and disposition. We know that there are babies born addicted to certain drugs. You know, cocaine babies are a clear example. But we don't sit there and say, well, you're born a cocaine baby addicted to cocaine, so here, go at it, man, all the cocaine you want. No, we do all we can to try to control or correct or change that particular disposition. So just because we're born with a particular disposition doesn't make it right, right? If it's healthy or unhealthy, we evaluate it. If it's an unhealthy disposition, we do what we can to control or to change it. So that is not a good argument for transgenderism. Here's another one I get. Intersex people show that people are born with unclear gender. All right, now intersex people are people who are born with a physical disorder. Their reproductive anatomy is ambiguous. And so there's some confusion there. Now, that's different from transgenderism. Those dealing with transgenderism are not dealing with the ambiguity of their biological sex. Transgenderism is built on the idea that the biological sex they are born with is clear and they are making a decision to reject it and transition into the opposite sex. Okay, whereas intersex people, it's born unclear exactly which sex they are at birth. And intersex conditions are a result, once again, of living in a fallen world. It's a deviation from the norm. It's not a new norm in sex. It happens uh, in very rare situations where people are born with ambiguous genitalia and we don't know exactly which sex they are. Now, the best way we have discovered in dealing with intersex people, and we've been dealing with them for many years now, the best way is to find out which gender they are most like and move them in that direction. All right, so if they most fit the female biology, then we'll do all we can to correct that situation and move them in that direction and vice versa. We do not say, well, you're intersex, so try out female, try out male, or be a male for five years and then, uh, hey, we'll switch you over to female in five years and then, you know, we'll figure out which one you like and, you know. No, we figure out which 
sex they are closest to. Make the physical changes that we can and then try to move them in one of those directions. All right, so this whole idea of intersex people show, you know, is an argument for transgenderism, then once again is a false argument. Here's another one I hear quite a bit. What I do with my body is my business, and no one has the right to tell me what I can do with my body. Well, actually, that's wrong. You're not allowed to do whatever you want with your body, okay? If you want to inject yourself with all kinds of harmful drugs, you're going to be arrested, okay? You're not allowed to do that. If you want to slash yourself, if you want to go out and get drunk, you're legally not allowed to do that. Okay? That's something that uh, you'll get arrested for and we'll try to get you help there. So once again, that's a false argument. Here's another one that I received over the week. Jesus never specifically condemns homosexuality or transgenderism. Well, that's an argument from silence. Okay, And argument from silence is never really a good argument. Jesus doesn't mention pedophilia specifically. He doesn't mention abusing women or the trafficking of young girls. Okay? He doesn't specifically mention that. But we do not argue that molesting children by an adult is wrong or trafficking of young women is wrong. We don't argue that because okay? we know the principles in the Bible go against it. And Jesus affirms clearly the authority of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those are words that he inspired through the prophets and the apostles. So the argument from silence, uh, it's a very weak kind of argument. Here is a, another question. It says, where does the Bible prohibit gender transformation? Well, the Bible doesn't specifically say, thou shall not transform your gender. But from the principles we see in the Bible, it's clear that God is against this whole ideology of transgenderism. Because, first of all, Genesis 1, God says that he created them in his image, male and female. All right, There's really only two genders, and they're not changeable. Okay? And male and female are created in the image of God, as we discussed last week. Second of all, there are several passages in the Bible that prohibit what I'll call gender twisting. Several passages that prohibit the confusing of the gender or males playing females and vice versa. For example, there is a prohibition in the Bible against cross-dressing. Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things, it, this is an abomination to the Lord your God. So here in the Old Testament, the Old Testament law condemns cross-dressing. And the word says this is an abomination. The Hebrew word there is to'eva, and it means detestable, repulsive, or it's loathsome to the Lord. And it's used often in association with idolatry and homosexuality. Now, this command against cross-dressing was given to protect the distinction between man and woman. All right? God did not want the blurring between male and female in any way. That's why this prohibition is given. So this passage teaches that God wanted to protect this distinction between the sexes that he had established at creation. So wearing clothing of the opposite sex 
causes uh, sex and gender confusion, the confusion of one's sexual identity, and it blurs the distinction that God clearly made at creation and something that he wanted to maintain. So if there's a prohibition against cross-dressing, and certainly all right, there would be one against gender transition. Second, there's the prohibition against men acting feminine or playing the part of women. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, the Bible states, So do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul is building on the Old Testament passages here of Leviticus 18 and 20 and Deuteronomy uh, 22, the verse that I just read. And Paul says here, nor the effeminate. All right. Now the term effeminate, the Greek word there is malakos, and it refers to softness. And so Paul is stating here that it is unnatural for a man to be soft like a woman. So Paul was writing against the process of feminization. And this would erase the clear distinction between man and woman, erasing the masculine nature of man and blurring that distinction as he was acting the part of a female, all right? So a man should not be playing the part of a woman in a relationship or in society. That's what Paul was talking about here. And it's followed by the act of homosexuality. In a homosexual relationship, one of the partners, uh, between two males, one of the partners must play the part of a female, right? And that's why Paul probably put those two sinful acts together. All right, and so the Bible forbids in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 that a man act like a woman or play, be soft like a woman or play the part of a woman. He is to maintain his masculine identity. Third, there is proper gender expression in public that Paul talks about here. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 4 through 15, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but just highlight some here. Paul writes this, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as her covering. Right now, what Paul wants to make clear is this, that husbands and wives, uh, there's a clear distinction here and a clear way to express that gender distinction in public. And in the context of the Jewish culture here in worship, a man worshiped with his head uncovered. If he covered his head during worship, that dishonored God. While the woman who prayed and worshipped needed to have her head covered. If she did that with her head uncovered, that was dishonoring to God. The genders were to publicly express themselves publicly in a way then that showed their distinction. That's what Paul was talking about here, and that's what God wanted. 
So a man should not cover his head because Paul says he is the image of God and that the woman should have her head covered because she is the glory of man. So Paul states here that men in worship should worship with an uncovered head publicly and this displayed the man's honor, all right? And a clear distinction in public display here of gender expression, distinction between men and women, between husband and wives. In verses 8 through 9 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this, For man was not created from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So Paul here points not to the culture here, but to the very order of creation. So this is a principle that transcends culture here because he's talking about the order of creation. says that the woman was made from the man, pointing to the order of creation here, which is what Paul is talking about. So Paul wants us to maintain this distinction publicly, which was established at creation. Now, we do not have head coverings in our day today, but we do have ways to publicly express the distinction between male and female. And Paul is saying that is a healthy thing to do, all right? That God wants to maintain that distinction, that principle from the Old Testament all the way comes through the New Testament, all right? That God wants to make clear there's a distinction between male and female, and there's a public way of expressing and displaying that distinction there in public. And we should not be getting uh, the genders confused. So there you see there are several passages in the Bible against gender twisting and confusing the roles. And if God did not permit the confusion of male and female and their roles, he obviously would not be in favor of changing one's gender from their biological makeup. Well, here's some other questions I was asked this week. What percentage of the population would you say is transgender? Well, the Williams Institute at the University of California estimates about 0.3% of the U.S. population. So that would be about 700,000, all right? So much lower than 1%. But I think with the push of things like the Equality Act and H.R. 5, and the curriculum that they are introducing and encouraging young children to accept transgenderism and encouraging those who may be struggling with gender dysphoria or may even not be struggling with gender dysphoria, but to not only accept, but it's even healthy to investigate and pursue possibly you are another gender. With the kind of curriculum that's coming out, that statistic may grow, but right now it's just a small group of people suffering from what we would call gender dysphoria or part of the transgender movement. Is transgender regret common? Well, Professor Miroslav Georgievich, he's an acclaimed surgeon and researcher who performs about a hundred sex change surgeries a year. And one of the things he laments about is the growing number and lack of research on transgender people who have what's called transgender regret and are now seeking 
some kind of surgery reversal. There's no set number on that, but he says he's one of the top authorities in this arena that he's seeing a higher and higher number of what's called transgender regret. And also, on another note, he also is very concerned the average age of people getting these transgender change operations was in the late 20s. Now he's seeing them below 20 now and the age dropping even more younger. And so he's greatly concerned about that. Well, here's another one. Can someone be a Christian and quote transgender? Well, that's a tough one here, all right? Now, someone can be Christian and struggle with sin, all right? In fact, as Christians, we all struggle with sin. We have that battle, Romans chapter 7, uh, between the old nature or sinful flesh and the new nature or the God's Holy Spirit that is within us. And we'll have that battle constantly as we live our life here on this earth in this fallen body, all right? So... Christians may struggle with sin. They may even fall into sin. But a true Christian will not live in sin or continually, unrepentingly practice and continue in sin in an unholy kind of lifestyle. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1-2, when he was asked this question, well, shall we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? And he says, Meganoita. May it never be. Banish the thought. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So a true Christian sooner or later would be convicted by God's word and the Holy Spirit and brought out of that sinful lifestyle. If someone continues and maintains that sinful lifestyle and there's no struggle in him or no repentance whatsoever, and you may question if he really, truly is a disciple of Christ. First John 1, verses 6 through 7, John says, If we say we have fellowship with him, or if we are Christians, while we walk in darkness, we walk in disobedience to his commands and the word, then we lie and we do not practice the truth. So John is saying here, if you continue in a lifestyle of sin, and there's no struggle, no repentance on your part. Once you are convicted by the Spirit or by the Word, then he says, you're in darkness. You lie, and the truth is not in you. Perhaps you may not be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So, yes, a Christian can struggle with gender dysphoria, with tendencies to homosexuality or sexual immorality, but a true Christian will feel bad and convicted if they commit those sins and eventually come out of it or keep themselves holy and keep from committing those acts of sin as a lifestyle. Here's one, maybe this may be the final one or we'll do one more seeing how long this one takes. I got a question this week, Pat, should I keep my child in a state-run school knowing what comprehensive sex education will be teaching? If HR 5 and the Equality Act passes, if it passes, then we should really be concerned because children will be taught, in fact, they're already being taught in school that gender is fluid, all right? And that uh, if a child, elementary school child comes in to the counselor's office and says, well, I know physically I'm a boy, but I think I'm a girl. Counselor cannot say, hey, let's get you some help here. Let's get you comfortable with your biological sex. Can't do that anymore. All right, now you've got to encourage them 
perhaps to start making that gender transition. Right? And look at the curriculum there, the gender unicorn, the gender bread man, and the curriculum that they're learning. They're learning that gender is fluid. It can be changed. You can be biologically male, but emotionally female. So gender is fluid there. And that's the kind of curriculum they're going to be learning in comprehensive sex education. Many are learning that already. I've got emails from people in Japan showing me Japanese public school curriculum that children are already learning this, that this is natural and there's nothing wrong with it. Even though our psychology and psychiatric journals still maintain that it is a mental disorder. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuccarat. Oh,